Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike. This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. History doesn't have to be boring, buttoned up, or inaccessible. And it certainly didn't end in 1945. It belongs to all of us, and we share and add to it every day. Welcome to the History of Go-Go podcast, where I interview interesting guests, cover a motley crew of topics, and it's a place where you can sit, think, and drink all at the same time. I'm your host, Rob Mellon. It has been to me. A way of life, a charming challenge that comes from from a little object, a little round ball made up of rubber inside and the yarn about it and horsehide cover with 162 stitches or what have you. What is it that would challenge the interest of a man for 58 years? I tell you, it has blessed me. My guest today is Mike Mitchell. He is a former television producer who has had a lifelong love affair with baseball ever since he attended his very first game as a child, remembering vividly Lou Brock's walk-up music and eating ice cream at Bush Stadium with a wooden spoon. His first book, Show Me Kings, Boot Heel Ball, The Cooks and Clan, and The Run and Gun All-Star Show, celebrated the history of high school basketball in Missouri. His most recent work, Mr. Ricky's Redbirds, Baseball, Beer, Scandals, and Celebrations in St. Louis, follows the history of the St. Louis Cardinals and the profound impact that baseball executive Branch Ricky had on the team. Over an amazing 21-year period, 1926 and 1946, the Cardinals won an astounding nine pennants and six world titles, and Branch Ricky was the biggest reason why. Of the book, Mr. Ricky's Redbirds, Mark Tomasic of RetroSimba.com says, an entertaining, compelling read. It changed my perspective about people and events that shaped Cardinals baseball. And I'm very pleased to have the author of Mr. Ricky's Redbirds with us today. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me, Rob. So beer and baseball, now, this is a connection that goes back probably to the earliest days of the game the German communities. I know there were some beer gardens, for example, but of course the temperance movement, prohibition took its toll. What's the history of beer and baseball? Well, beer, as you point out, is intertwined into the very fabric and history of the game going back to the beginning of the National League. So basically you have two parallel leagues uh, by the 1880s. You have the National League, which came out of another failed league, which was called the National Association, which was marked by a lot of crookedness and and drunkenness, and the National League wanted to set a different standard. So they took a different marketing route. The American Association comes along a few years later, and they do a couple different things from the National League in that they sell beer at their games, they allow Sunday baseball, and they charge about half the price that a National League ticket costs. The National League ticket back then cost about 50 cents. The American Association, you get attend a baseball game for 25 cents. And it's enormously popular and enormously influential. In, in St. Louis, you have the American Association Browns of the 1880s are a very popular, very successful team. The National League tries to come into St. Louis in the 1880s and compete. St. Louis Maroons last two years and, and go out of business. 
eventually the National League decides if, if we can't compete with these guys, uh, let's have them join us. So the 1880s American Association Browns become the 1890s National League Browns, and of course, is this franchise that later becomes the St. Louis Cardinals. As you mentioned, the you know the battle over beer and baseball continues. It's a larger issue than just the game of baseball. As prohibition takes effect in 1919, even in the 1920s, there are certain states, Pennsylvania and Massachusetts, in which you cannot play some of the baseball. But by the 1930s, with the repeal of prohibition, Pennsylvania and Michigan relax their laws. So by the mid 1930s, eventually you can have Sunday baseball everywhere in, in the American National League, beer uh, back at the ballparks. But this is a battle that plays out over decades. Mike, it is tradition here to accompany the conversation with a special brew. Today, in honor of Mr. Ricky's Redbirds, we have Urban Underdog American Lager from the Urban Chestnut Brewing Company of St. Louis, Missouri. Now, Urban Chestnut has a new world meets old world brewing approach, which is really amazing. And Urban Underdog is in their American Craft Beer Revolution series. It is a very pale, light-bodied, refreshing lager with a light corn-like malt profile and very low bitterness. This clean, crisp, easy-to-drink beer won a gold medal at the 2019 L.A. International Beer Competition. And it is the perfect beer to enjoy while you're watching a little Cardinals baseball. This is also my time to remind you to subscribe to the podcast. Simply click on the subscribe button on the directory that you use and get new material immediately after it is published. Subscribing is the only way to get new shows right away. To the ever-expanding list of supporters and listeners from more than 50 countries and hundreds of cities across America, I would like to say thank you. And now, I hold my Urban Underdog American Lager very high. And in honor of Branch Rickey, the Gas House Gang, Bob Gibson, Lou Brock, and all the Cardinals, past and present, I say cheers. So your book is Branch Rickey's Redbird. So before we get to Branch Rickey, though, and you've kind of described some of the history of St. Louis baseball, the organization now known as the Cardinals, as you said, came to the National League. As we know today, I think 1892, they changed their name to the Cardinals in 1900. What kind of a success, though, did they have? You said the Browns were successful. What type of success did the then Cardinals have from 1892 to about 1925? Not much at all. In fact, by the end of the 1925 season, there are only two teams that have not won a pennant, and they both reside in St. Louis. They're the St. Louis Cardinals and the the other St. Louis Browns, which is the American League St. Louis Browns, which came to town in 1902. So neither one of those two teams had won a, a pennant by 1925. So Cardinals have been there, had been in the National League since 1892, the Browns since 1902. Neither one of them met with any success. In fact, there were many years where both of them finished in last place. I think the the highest they ever finished was in second place, if I'm not mistaken. Second or third? I, I mean, there were a couple of thirds. I know I know Miller Huggins had a third <laughs> place in 1914, which was uh, considered pretty impressive at the time. Cardinal fans wouldn't go for that today, Mike. <laughs> no, it's it's a it's a very different atmosphere today versus what it was back then. Of course, that that was sort of the the genesis of what I the story I wanted to tell, which was the you know the beginnings of the change and uh, and the story of Branch Rickey. Yeah, so that takes us to Branch Rickey. How about the earliest days of Branch Rickey, though? I know he's born in 1881, but where did he grow up? Where did he go to school? I know he had tuberculosis at one point. He did. He grew up in Ohio. He grew up on a farm just outside of Lucasville, Ohio, which is about 100 miles outside of Cincinnati. 
His dad was a farmer. They eventually moved to town when uh, Branch is about 10 or 12 years old. He ends up marrying his high school sweetheart, Jenny Moulton. Her father ran the general store there in Lucasville. Branch is bright and also athletic. He attends Ohio Wesleyan, and he plays both football and baseball. He's a running back in football. He is a catcher in baseball. But after his freshman year in college, he gets in trouble because he plays semi-pro baseball that summer and accepts money for it. And that becomes known, and he is disqualified from uh, playing any more college sports. So then later on, I think he ends up at the University of Michigan. He might have even coached there, I believe. He did, actually. After he gets disqualified from playing at Ohio Wesleyan, he meets with the college president. The college president becomes so impressed by him and the story that he tells, and he admits that he, that he took the money, whereas uh, he got a letter from someone else claiming that he didn't take the money, but he fesses up and tells the truth that he did take it, that the, uh, the president ends up naming him the baseball coach at Ohio Wesleyan. So he's 20, 21 years old. He's already a college baseball coach. So he coaches there, and then he begins first playing more semi-pro and then minor league baseball, and he eventually gets called up to the Cincinnati Reds in 1904, but because of his strict religious beliefs, and he tells his mom at a young age he's never going to play baseball on a Sunday, he tells the manager of the Cincinnati Reds in 1904 that he's not going to play baseball on a Sunday. Well, that doesn't go over too well with the Reds manager, and he tells him to go home. Well, he never gets into a game with the Reds in 1904, and then he comes up to the Browns in St. Louis in 1905. He plays with the Browns in 05 and 06, and eventually ends up with the New York Highlanders, what we call the Yankees today in 1907. But he had hurt his shoulder in the offseason, and in a game in 1907 against the Washington Senators, they still 13 bases on him. So at that point, his, his catching career is effectively done. His last season is, for all intents and purposes, 1907. He, he plays in a few games, I think, in 1914 as manager of the Browns, but his career really ends in 1907. Was that uh, Coleman and McGee in the 80s Cardinals that got those 13 bases off of them? That's probably a little after. <laughs> Apparently, yeah, that's pretty crazy when you think about that's it. That's crazy, Apparently, yeah. You know, he, just, he just couldn't throw, you know, so they would just get on first base and just take off every single time. So that effectively ended his baseball career. He does get uh, tuberculosis a year or two later after that. He starts losing a lot of weight, starts coughing up blood. And, of course, this is the early 20th century. You don't have a lot of modern medicine or modern, modern medical facilities and the only cure back then was a lot of rest and a belief that you should spend time in a dry climate. So he goes to a sanitarium in upstate New York. He eventually recovers. He eats a lot of high-calorie meals. He puts back on weight. He even drinks beer. Ricky, the prohibitionist, drinking beer at the time. It was a big deal to him. And uh, he recovers from that. And then he goes to the University of Michigan, where he not only gets his law degree, he convinces and talks to the AD at Michigan to let him to coach the baseball team. And, of course, it's at Michigan where he coaches George Sisler. Yeah. And Ricky and, and George Sisler would later reunite with the St. Louis Browns. That's right. He also has a very interesting service in World War I with the U.S. Army in France. Poison gas famously used in World War I. Ricky was part of the Chemical Warfare Service. I think he was a major. And Ty Cobb and Christy Mathewson was in the unit he commanded? That's, that seems crazy. <laughs> So it's 1918, and by this time, Ricky has left the Browns. He's with the Cardinals, actually. And he later writes, it's, uh, it's pretty astonishing. He says that they, he had this overwhelming urge to fight in combat. And this shocks his wife, who admits later that she even considered leaving at the time. And Ricky's not, a, he's not really a young man at the time. By 1918, he's in his mid-30s, mm. and he, he signs up for military service. And as Ty Cobb later, later wrote, that uh, the thinking was that the Doughboys would listen to professional athletes. So uh, Ricky and Cobb and Matheson would instruct the Doughboys on how to put on the gas mask for the gas attacks. And, uh, of course, he didn't spend a whole lot of time over there. He didn't get to France until 
keep in mind this is the summer of 1918. The, the Spanish flu is ripping through the population. Right. On the ship that actually sends into Europe that kills something like 100 people, Ricky actually contracts bronchial pneumonia, spends about three weeks in the hospital. He doesn't get to France until September, October. The war is over by November. He's back in the States by December. He returns to St. Louis shortly after the war, I believe. You said that he left actually the Browns to the Cardinals prior to the war. What was the story surrounding that? Well, a couple things happened. One, the Browns were sold. There was a competing league in the middle teens of the 1900s where you had a league called the Federal League. So it competed with the American League and the National League. It folded, disbanded, and one of the owners, someone by the name of Phil Ball, he ends up buying the St. Louis Browns from Robert Hedges. So when Ball takes over, Ricky, who had been managing the Browns, no longer manages. He just has a role in the front office. And he's not very happy working with the Browns. He and Ball don't get along. They have very different views on alcohol. And at the same time, the St. Louis Cardinals, after the 1916 season, they go up for sale. Colleen Britton, who owns the Cardinals, she's getting a divorce from her husband. And an attorney in town, James C. Jones, organizes a fan syndicate. So they put together this deal where fans can buy stock in the Cardinals. Mm. And in 19, early 1917, this fan-led syndicate buys out the St. Louis Cardinals. Well, that's great from a financing standpoint, but you can have 3,000 shareholders, but you can't have sort of you know 3,000 people on your board of directors running the team. They needed someone with a professional background to run the team. And one of the stories or legends goes that they assemble a group of sports writers in St. Louis, and they pull them of who should run the St. Louis Cardinals, and every one of them recommends Branch Ricky. And Ricky becomes president of the Cardinals in 1917. You know, I've been a Cardinal fan my whole life, Mike, and I think there is 3,000 Cardinal fans who think that's exactly how the team should operate. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> nothing like uh, nothing like managing from TV. That's right, that's right. So Branch Rickey is the reason why the Cardinals have the iconic Birds on the Bat logo on their uniform today. What's the story behind that? Yeah, you know, Ricky was uh, was a big public speaker, and he and he spoke a lot of events. And he went to a church in Florence, Missouri, in the early 1920s, and he sees this design, and he loves it. And yeah, they end up making that the iconic birds on the bat in the 1920s. And yeah, that that starts then with Ricky, and 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 the early days of the early association with the Cardinals, and that's something that's been part of the uniform ever since. You know, the interesting thing is, I think there was one year, or maybe a half of year, in the 1950s. I don't know, 56 maybe, I'm just guessing, where they had the word Cardinals written across the front with no birds on the bat. I think there was a public outcry, and they put the birds on the bat back on the uniform again. So you're right, from the very beginning, outside of that one little section of time, which sometimes you can see those photos of, you know, like Musual, where it just says Cardinals, but it was only for a half a season, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, just there were some very brief times where they had some changes uh, to the uniform. You know, the, the other thing with the uniforms that Ricky experiments with in the early days is uniform numbers. And the Cardinals actually, in 1923, actually wore uniform numbers on their sleeves for a little bit. And it backfired. Apparently, the players didn't like it, the fans didn't like it, so they removed them. And, and numbers on uniforms really don't become something to the late 1920s, early 1930s. Hmm. So he was a manager for the Cardinals for a while. He's not very successful. He's fired in 1925. He's thinking at this point, I'm guessing, that his baseball career is close to over. Sam Breeden, the owner of the Cardinals, moved him to what we call the front office. I don't know if they referred to it as the front office back then. And he says, I'm going to do you the greatest favor one man ever did for another. So was Breeden right about that? Yeah. 
Ricky has this incredible uh, front office career that actually starts, even though even though he was managing the Cardinals, he was also sort of running. He was running the front office, as you point out, really wasn't. I don't even think the term general manager was used back then. But he was running the operation even while he was managing the team. And it's, it's this combination of Braden and Ricky that in the early 1920s, they really start reaping and remolding the Cardinals. And what they do is they start buying these minor league franchises. In the early 1920s, they buy a team in Syracuse, New York. They buy one in Fort Smith, Arkansas. They buy one in Houston, Texas. And it's from these early days, these early minor league teams, that the Cardinals really began to populate and develop a talent pipeline. You know, prior to having these minor league teams, I mean, the model back then was you did not have these vertically integrated system. The model was that if you needed a player, you would go out and purchase a player from a minor league team. The minor league teams were sort of these independently run autonomous organizations in these small towns across America. And if you wanted a player, you had to pay up. Well, just as today, back then, it was the, it was the big money, big market teams that could do so. And St. Louis struggled in that, that respect. So it was Ricky that came up with this idea of developing this pipeline of talent. That type of pipeline of talent began showing up in the mid-1920s. As you mentioned, he transformed the way players are evaluated and the way the minor league system runs itself. But that caused a lot of controversy with the Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who was the commissioner. I believe he was the first commissioner of baseball. He thought Ricky's system was actually going to ruin the game. So what happens with that combative relationship between Landis and Ricky? Yeah, what you have is two very different philosophies of what minor league baseball should be. And, and Landis believed that sort of the minor leagues should be these independent operators. They should be these locally owned teams, and they should have no connection with the major leagues. Well, Ricky came in, Ricky Braden came along and took a totally different approach to that and said, no, we're going to own the minor league teams. They're going to be this vertically integrated system so we can, instead of having to buy a player, we can simply transfer a player from one of our teams to another team. And they battle over this for years and years and years. It ultimately ends up in a case in the late 1930s called the Cedar Rapids case where Landis releases dozens of part of minor league players because uh, they're unfairly signing them to contracts that these players don't know about, and they're controlling some of these minor leagues in addition to the minor league teams that they own and run. And I think the interesting thing about it is Ricky just keeps doing it, even though Landis releases players, and then eventually the rest of the teams figure out this is the way to go, and Ricky's model wins out. Ricky's model does win out, and it's, it's really, if you look at the, the history of success in baseball, there were really three organizations that were the early adopters of this type of system. They were Ricky's Cardinals, they were Ricky's Dodgers, and then they were the New York Yankees in the 1930s and 1940s. Under owner Jacob Rupert, they began doing the same thing, following the Ricky model of the minor league system. And really, if you look at the success of baseball throughout the decades, what three teams have, have been more successful than the other, certainly the Yankees and Cardinals, in terms of playing and, and uh, winning World Series. I think they're in top five. I think those three teams are in the top five of all-time wins. Certainly, the Yankees have won more World Series than anyone by far. Right. The Cardinals have won more than any team in the National League. The Dodgers have probably won, maybe have won more pennants than the Cardinals. I don't believe they've won as many World Series. The Cardinals did win the World Series, their first one in 1926, and that's kind of a famous thing that happens because Rogers Hornsby tags out Babe Ruth trying to steal second to end Game 7. The Cardinals win that game 3-2, to two, which is just amazing to me. I don't always picture Babe Ruth as a fast runner attempting to steal, I guess, to get into scoring position. 
What happened that year for the Cardinals to turn things around after their existence of futility? That's a Yankees team in the 20s that still had Murderer's Row, which we know from 27. That's basically the same team in 26. It is, but you know, keep in mind that the Yankees of the 20s are not necessarily the Yankees we think of today. The Yankees of 1925, in fact, were a seven-place team. They were not very good. That was a Yankee team in a lot of transition. Babe Ruth was out of shape that year. He famously gets suspended in August by manager Miller Huggins for being uh, out late night in St. Louis. And Ruth does something that offseason that he had never done before. He begins working with a trainer. And 1926, he comes back rededicated, refocused. 1925 was the first year as Lou Gehrig as a regular on the New York Yankees. So really, 26 is the beginning of the Gehrig-Ruth years. They have a very good year that year. They win 91 games. Cardinals won 89, win the National League. Of course, the Cardinals also have some talent, too, that's beginning to develop. You know, as I mentioned earlier, the Cardinals are beginning planting these seeds with these minor league teams. And by 26, you have Jim Bottomley at first base for the Cardinals, who's a future Hall of Famer. Right. You have a young Chick Hafey in the outfield, who's a future Hall of Famer. They have Flint Ram, a pitcher who wins 20 games for that staff. And they make a couple of really sharp acquisitions. You know, they acquire Billy Southworth. An outfielder from the New York Giants, he gets a game-winning home run to clinch the pennant in New York against his old team, John McGraw's New York Giants. And, of course, they famously pick up Grover Cleveland Alexander off waivers from the Cubs, and who wins nine games in the regular season for the Cardinals, and then he wins games two and six as a starter, and he famously comes in to save game seven. The seventh game of the World Series, which is always a romantic event, is started by Jesse Haynes, a knuckleball pitcher. The bottom of the seventh, the Yankees load the bases, two out. Haynes can go no further. His fingers are bleeding from throwing that knuckleball. Haynes uh, will be relieved, and I can't tell who's going to come in. It is going to be Grover Cleveland Alexander. Oh, Pete will come on. He said they they were younger men in the bullpen, fresher arms. In the sixth game, he pitched a complete game victory to even the series at 3-3 uh, at three to three for the uh, St. Louis Cardinals. This was a legend, walking in gray afternoon, Yankee Stadium, walking in out of the mist. This was the man they believed in. All Pete will come on. The veteran Alexander will try to put out the fire here in the last half of the seventh inning. And he got near the mound and Hornsby walked over to second base, met him as he came in, looked in his eyes and he said, Pete, Bases loaded two out. Well, there ain't no place to put anybody as a Raj. He'll first be faced by Tony Lazari. Rookie, Tony Lazari. Hard-hitting, tough-minded, young second baseman. Again, the runners take their long two-out bases loaded leads. And he told Hornsby, I'm going to pitch the first one. Fastball inside. And if he hits it, it'll be foul. And Hornsby said, no, you can't do that as a fastball hitter. And Alexander said, if I put it where I want to put it, He's going to hit it foul if he hits it at all. And then Hornsby looked at Alexander and said, well, who the hell am I to tell you how to pitch? And Alexander said, then I'm going to curve him low and away. One, two, three. And that's exactly what happened. Again, the runners take their long two-out bases loaded lead. And that is all for the New York Yankees in the last half of the seventh inning as all Pete comes in in a situation that will go down as one of the most dramatic moments in all sports. 
and strikes out, push him up Missouri with the bases full. Into the mythological books of baseball history goes Alexander and his strikeout of Missouri, which a lot of historians like to look upon as the ultimate generational challenge in baseball history. Rogers Hornsby, one of the best hitters to ever play the game. Frankie Frisch, I think there's a quote that says, I'll have to paraphrase, but he's the only man he ever met that could hit 350 in the dark. (laughs) (laughs) But he had trouble staying with a single team. I think even the Cardinals traded him, even after tremendous success. He didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't go to movies, but he's got this very turbulent life. He does. You know, it's a pretty incredible situation the event that happened in the fall of 1926. I mean, here's Roger Swarnsby. He is the starting second baseman for the Cardinals. He had uh, won a National League MVP in 1925. He is the the winning manager of the first World Series team in Cardinals history. And this is in October of 1926. A few days before that World Series starts, his mother dies. The funeral gets postponed until after the World Series is over. In December of 1926, he's traded. You mentioned Frisch. He's traded to the New York Giants for Frankie Frisch, which creates this huge uproar in St. Louis. Sam Braden, the owner of the team, is he, he talks about going out to lunch the next day, shows up at the hotel to eat, and he says he dines alone because no one will, no one even wants to talk to him. But the other thing that shows up just after that in early 1927 is part of the problem with Hornsby, and that is there was a, a Kentucky bookmaker by the name of Frank Moore ends up suing Hornsby because Hornsby's one passion outside of baseball was betting. And he loved to bet on horse racing. He did that throughout his life, throughout his career, to the detriment of his career, to the detriment of his life. And that was something that, that plagued him throughout his playing career. Because once he once he left the Cardinals, he never really stayed anywhere long. Although he did, did have a few years there with the Cubs. And he did go back to the World Series with the Cubs in 1929. But he ends up getting released from them in 1932. Is there any connection to that stigma of the 1919 scandal, the Black Sox scandal, and then his betting or his desire to go to the track and so forth? Well, there, there was certainly preoccupation with baseball officials. I mean, they were absolutely concerned with it. I mean, you talked about Judge Landis earlier. He was the first baseball commissioner, and the reason he was the baseball commissioner, it did come out of the Black Star scandal. I mean, baseball had a very different ruling structure before then and uh, had a three-man body. And Landis, who is a former federal judge, becomes this autocratic ruler of the game, and he just basically is a no-nonsense guy and then begins to clean house in the early 1920s. That's really his mantra and his mission. And any rumors or any whiffs of anything gambling related to the game is, is, is treated seriously by, by officials. So that was something that absolutely worried baseball executives throughout the 1920s. The 1930s, the Cardinals are successful as well. You have the Gas House Gang, some of the most colorful teams during that decade in the history of baseball. According to legend, they say, They didn't bathe and they didn't shave, but they did win a lot of games. They had a rough and tumble way of playing the game, chewing tobacco. Their uniforms weren't clean. They'd spit on the, you know, you'd hear these stories where they'd spit the tobacco and then use their shirt to wipe their face. That must have been a fun part of your research, getting into Dizzy Dean and some of those characters. Well, Dizzy Dean is a a pretty incredible guy. I mean, you think of, of what he did and what he did at the age he did it. Here he is. In 1930, he makes his major league debut. He's 19 years old. He pitches one game on the last day of the season. The Cardinals had already clinched the pennant. His manager at the time was Gabby Street. Gabby Street was the catcher for Walter Johnson for the old uh, Washington Senators. And after the game, he tells reporters it's the closest thing he'd ever seen to Walter Johnson. Amazingly, Dizzy Dean doesn't pitch 1931 in the big leagues. 
He's a bit of an eccentric. He has some attitude issues. He has some spending issues. Like Colonel tried to put him on a $1 a day budget spring training in 1931. <laughs> he doesn't always show up. Gabby Street has some run-ins with him, so they, they farm him out in 1931. He spends all of 1931 in the minor leagues. And yet, even though he's in the minor leagues in 1931, he receives all sorts of press, all sorts of attention. There's a the NEA group, which is an old newspaper wire group. They do something like a 10 or 12-part series on him in 1931. He's finally up for good in 32, 32, and 33. He leads the league in strikeouts. And, of course, in 34, he makes this outrageous prediction in spring training that him and his brother, who had never pitched a single game in the big leagues, his brother's a rookie, Paul Dean, and he says, I think we can win 40 to 45 games, which is just outlandish that he would do this, right? But amazingly, he undercounts or underpredicts what they can win. They actually <laughs> win 49 games that year. Crazy. You know? Yeah. So, you know, he wins He wins 30. Paul wins 19. The Cardinals win the pennant. They currently go in the World Series. And the World Series go seven games. And Disney and Paul win all four of the Cardinal victories that belong to the Dean brothers. Well, Paul, we ought to win 45 ball games this year. I think we will, Diz. If you win 35, I'll take care of the rest. Nice going, boy. Isn't there a, a famous situation, and I think Landis is at the game, I think it's in 34, where one of them, which is common for that team, the Gas House Gang, where they'd slide in rough and the fans start pelting one of the Cardinals in the outfield and have to remove him from the game. Isn't that in 34? That was actually, yeah, that was game seven. That was uh, Cardinals won the game 11 nothing. So the outcome wasn't doubt, but what happened was Joe Medwick had a triple. Oh, yeah, it was Medwick. Yeah, it was Medwick. Yeah. yeah. It was Medwick in about the sixth or seventh inning, and he does a hard slide into the Detroit third baseman, and they sort of tangle a little bit then. And afterwards, after the inning's over, Medwick goes out to left field. So uh, as he's standing there in left field, the Tiger fans start pelting him with everything they have. Judge Landis is at the game, and he makes a decision for safety reasons to remove uh, Medwick from the contest. Now as Medwick takes over in left field, the Detroit Bleacherites are pelting him with vegetables. Boy, these fans are really boiling. Now Medwick is being called by Judge Landis. The commissioner is going to straighten things out. The conference is very brief. Frankie Frisch steps away, and he is looking very happy. Yes, Medwick has been told to leave the game so the Detroit fans will let the play continue. And Medwick's really sore. Well, it's 11 to nothing. Thankfully, it wasn't 4 to 3 or something like that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, Dizzy Dean's on the mound. He goes a distance, steps the mountain, and starts the World Series. Diz was near the drinking fountain, and he said to Joe, You'll hustle after the ball from now on. He said, When I'm pitching out here, I'll punch you right in the nose. And with that, he got up and started for Joe. And Paul joined him. And Joe just carefully reached down for a bat. <laughs> And he said, stop up here, boys, and I'll separate both of you. <laughs> well, we finally got that quieted down. About the third inning, we got the bases loaded. We were two runs behind. Medwick hit one over in the trees in Shanley Park. He come in, went right to the drinking fountain, Diz sitting right there in front of it. Joe took a big drink of water, spit on Dean's foot, and he says, see if you can hold that lead. <laughs> Yeah, those are great teams in the 30s, but the Cardinals had really good teams in the 40s as well. Branch Rickey created this system of producing these great players. He, of course, leaves for the Dodgers in 42, but he must have had a lot of impact on those teams from the 40s that had Musial and Slaughter and Marion and eventually Shane Deanst. All those players were came up under, under Rickey's system. You know, Rickey doesn't leave till after the 42 season is over, and the, the 42 team to this day is still in terms of regular season victories, the greatest in Cardinals history. They won 106 games that year. 
So that team was loaded. When he left the Cardinals, they were loaded and loaded for several years to come. So, yeah, um, usual comes out of the minor league system that Ricky had developed. Jamie signs in 42. He's one of the last players to sign under the Ricky regime. They win the pennant in 43. They lose the World Series to the Yankees. They famously beat the, the Browns in 44 and the only All-St. Louis World Series. And then after the war, they come back and win in 46. McBride grounds to Shane Beat, and Higgins is forced out at second to end the ball game with the St. Louis Cardinals winning the seventh and final game of the 1946 World Series by a score of four to three. It was the sixth time in their nine World Series appearances since 1926 that baseball's highest honor has gone to the St. Louis Cardinals. But of course, this time, Ricky's developing this pipeline of talent with the Dodgers. And he copied the playbook that he had from St. Louis. And he, by the late 1940s, the Dodgers minor league system is bigger than the Cardinals minor league system. And in 47, it's like a, a switch gets flipped. And from 26 to 46, Cardinals win six World Series and nine pennants. And then over the next 20 years in baseball, the greatest team in the National League wins 10 pennants. It's not the Cardinals, it's the Dodgers. What's the story of the finding of Stan Musial? There was a lot of teams interested in Musial. He was discovered by a scout. You know, he came out of Western Pennsylvania, discovered by a scout there. And he actually, you know, Musial had a pitching career. Right, yeah, yeah. In addition to, to an outfielder career and famously, uh, you know, hurt his shoulder. And at one point, his manager in the minor leagues was a guy by the name of Dickie Kerr. And Dickie Kerr was a pitcher on the 1919 Black Sox. Wow. <laughs> He's not one of the eight men out. He's one of the clean White Sox. He actually <laughs> won a game, which actually threw off the gamblers. But, uh, you know, Musial always credits Dickie Kerr for, for keeping on track and keeping on track with his career. And, of course, he recovers from that injury and goes on to uh, have a uh, phenomenal career, Hall of Fame career with the Cardinals. He was um, assigned as a batting practice pitcher for the Columbus, Ohio Club in spring training at Hollywood, Florida in the uh, spring of 1941. And uh, there is his first time that I ever saw him to be impressed uh, uh, with, his, with his ability as a, a hitter. Mr. B. Shotton, Barney Shotton was known, an old player here and later a manager. Me and later a manager at Brooklyn, won a pennant. He was the manager of the Columbus Club. And at breakfast in that morning when I occasion to visit in the Columbus Club in Hollywood, Florida, he said to me, do you know about a batsman by the name of Musiel? I said, I never heard of him. I know a pitcher, a left-hand pitcher. He said, sent here to pitch to your hitters for practice. He said, I want to show you where he hit a ball in this park out here. And that morning when we went out to the field, he showed me where he'd hit the ball on the bank of the railroad in right center over the fence. And I asked him, I said, did you see him hit it? And he said, he did. I said, if you hadn't seen it, you would hardly believe it. I said, I wouldn't. Well, I said, if you don't mind, I won't either. Well, the Cardinals had me down listed as a pitcher, you know, and of course the very next season, they sent me to, uh, to uh, spring from Missouri as an outfielder for the first time it was class C. He hit 379 in that league and about 100% extra bases. And after he played those 70 odd games, I went down to see him two different times and was arranged to send him jump all the B's and A's and double A's to the Rochester in the International League. He went to Rochester in the International League and um, he played 54 games internationally. He had led the uh, 
Springfield League. He now led the International League. And I was so uh, intrigued with the fellow, with his kaleidoscopic advance and startlingly so, and so sensational, extra base hits galore. I brought him into St. Louis in the fall of 1941 at the end of the season. He played 12 games, with the last 12 games of the season with the Cardinals. And he led this league. And of course, Ricky is involved in all kinds of innovations for the game. It's not just the minor league system. I think he has a role in how spring training is developed. He's got a role in how batting cages are used and pitching machines and batting helmets. He's got a lot of impact outside of just the minor league system. Yeah, there's someone that was always tinkering, always thinking, always looking at the next big challenge, always trying to gain an edge. You talk about spring training, it's, it's interesting because in 1914, he is manager of the St. Louis Browns at the time, and he and a St. Petersburg, Florida businessman by the name of Al Lang, who goes on to become the mayor of St. Pete, they get the idea of bringing the Browns down to spring training in Florida. And that really starts the exodus of bringing teams down to Florida. Back then, teams would go anywhere to train, really anywhere warmer. A lot of teams would to places like Hot Springs, Arkansas, some went to Texas, some would go to California. So there really wasn't this consolidated spring training that we think of today where you just combined to you know, Florida and Arizona. But Ricky really starts that with Al Lang in 1914. Of course, Ricky and, and Al Lang would continue to have a relationship. The Cardinals would make St. Petersburg their spring training home in the 1930s and would stay there, well, until they moved to Jupiter in the 1990s. Of course, Al Lang Stadium opened in 47. The Cardinals and Yankees both played their spring training games there for many years. The uh, Yankees ended up going to, they leave St. Pete in the early 60s, but the Cardinals stay there until the mid-1990s until they get their new facilities in Jupiter. Another thing is statistical analysis. It guides nearly all baseball decisions today. And I'm joking here, but I say, I say they might even use statistical analysis to hire hot dog vendors. <laughs> but Ricky was at the forefront of this statistical analysis. He was the first, I believe, to hire a full-time statistician, placing a greater emphasis on on-base percentage, which now is like a core component of modern Moneyball or modern sabermetrics. Yeah, you know, even with the Browns in his early days, he would hire someone to sit behind home plate and they would start pitches, and they would cut bases. You know, even back then, he recognized that the game was not about hits, it was a game of bases. And so he wanted someone on the stands to keep as many statistics as possible. He goes on to the Dodgers and he hires someone by the name of Alan Ross who develops a statistician and they come up with all these things to develop a weighting in terms of win expectancy and runs created and all these things really ahead of his time in terms of, in terms of that element of the game. Branch Rickey, of course, is best known for people outside of the game for helping break baseball's color barrier, which interestingly never actually was a rule in baseball, although Landis was trying to make sure that that was the case. How does Ricky use the United States League for Black Players to get around baseball's unspoken rules and Landis's dissent? Because that league never actually played a single game. It did not, but you know something very interesting happens there in that because you talk about Landis and he was he was one of the main obstructions to or thought to be one of the main obstructions in terms of integrating the game. Well, Landis dies in late 1944. Jackie Robinson is signed in 1945, in October of 1945. So baseball has a new commissioner then, and that commissioner was Happy Chandler. And Chandler doesn't have the power that, that Landis did. Remember, Landis came out of the Black Sox scandal, and base, baseball was desperate and gave him basically whatever he wanted to rule the game. 
Well, by the mid 1940s, baseball is you know very different, and uh, you've got these owners who are much more uh, convinced that they should be running the show. And Ricky goes out in 1945 and signs Robinson. And Chandler doesn't. You know, there's, there's mixed opinion on what Chandler does. It doesn't really offer that much support. But one thing is clear: is he doesn't try to block it. Signs him in 45. Robinson goes on to play minor league baseball for the Dodgers in Montreal in 46. And then in 1947, he makes his major league debut. This is truly an historic day here in Jersey City. A 27-year-old Negro named Jackie Robinson is playing his first game for the Montreal Royals, the Dodger Farm Club. Robinson steps to the plate. Here's the pitch. Swing and long drive into deep left field. It might be home run, Jackie Robinson. Of course, we had the famous movie that was just a few years ago. And there's an interesting connection to our local town here in Quincy because one of the characters, which is an actual baseball player, was Fritz Ostermiller. And Ostermiller becomes kind of the antagonist of that movie. He uses some racial slurs. He beans Jackie Robinson. And the interesting thing is the family today says, well, that's not how he was at all. So there is a little bit of an interesting connection that we have locally to Jackie Robinson, I guess. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So the Cardinals were purchased by August Bush Jr. Even modern Cardinal fans know Gussie Bush. Remember that red cowboy hat? <laughs> yep. Do you got any interesting stories about him? The interesting thing about Gussie Bush and Anheuser Bush and the Cardinals is kind of the way they fell into buying the Cardinals. If you look at the, the history of St. Louis baseball in the 1940s and 1950s, there are a lot of beer companies that were involved in baseball, but not Anheuser Bush. There was Falstaff, there was the Greasy Brothers, there was Hyde Park. And Anheuser Bush was largely out of this picture for many years. But what happens is the Cardinals are owned by a man named Fred Sy, who gets in trouble with the IRS. And he has to go to prison. And because he has to go to prison, he makes a decision he, he needs to sell the team, he needs to sell the team quickly. Now, there's some interested parties from out of town, one group from in Houston, another group from Milwaukee. And the, the Milwaukee group was supposedly led by Fred Miller of, of Miller Brewing. And Anheuser-Busch gets, whiff, uh, gets a whiff of what's going on, and they get very interested in buying the Cardinals. And they make an offer to buy the team, and Cy actually accepts the offer from Anheuser-Busch which was allegedly less than what the, the group out of Milwaukee was willing to pay. And, of course, Anheuser-Busch, with their, with their great PR, always spun it as a move that, you know, they came in and saved the Cardinals. But Fred Side ever looked at it that way. Fred Side looked at it. He was the one to save the Cardinals because of what he did. He could have sold to another group, but he didn't. He kept the team in St. Louis. And Fred Side, as long as Anheuser-Busch owned the team, and Fred lived, I know, at least in the late 1990s, he never once attended the game when Anheuser-Busch owned the team. It wasn't until Bill DeWitt took over in the late 1990s that he returned to Bush Stadium. Now, congratulations are in order for you, Colonel Bush, for the fine thing that you have done in, in uh, buying the St. Louis Cardinals. Well, thank you very much. We're delighted to be the owners of the Cardinals, and we're going to try to give the fans everywhere the finest baseball that is known in the United States. You know, I've heard that Gussie Bush could be kind of a temperamental character. Oh, my goodness, yeah. Think of what happened in the early 1970s and what he did with the, with the Cardinals. I mean, think of the number of pennants that they, they could have had when uh, in 72 when he traced Steve Carlton and Jerry Royce. I mean, they get both of them, especially Carlton, becomes his dominant Hall of Fame pitcher, but Jerry Royce is also a very good pitcher. They had those two guys in the 70s. You know, there, there were years there where they, 
they win more games. It wouldn't have, there wouldn't have been a drought between 68 and 82. They would have won one in between there, or maybe more. So the Cardinals have had some very iconic announcers, radio announcers over the years. Going back as far as you could research, who were some of those early announcers and what was the impact of, say, Cardinals radio? Well, the earliest one would have been Franz Watts, really the most famous announcers. He came out of Oklahoma and he joined Camel X in 1929. And throughout the 1930s and 40s, he was a very big man in baseball. He was a favorite of Commissioner Landis, who had uh, back then, again, part of the autocratic control that Landis exhibited. He had control over who the radio announcers would be on the World Series. And Locks always got the call, or got the call many years on the CBS radio network. He would probably be the first one. The next one would be Dizzy Dean, who retires from baseball in 1941 as a player. Dizzy Dean at that point is 31 years old. It's amazing to think about all he did in his career, and he, he ends his baseball career at 31, although he came back for one game in 47 with the Browns, but essentially done in, in 41. And Falstaff lures him back to St. Louis, and he starts announcing baseball games, and he becomes very big in the 1940s. He is recognized in 1944 as the Sporting News play-by-play broadcaster of the year. And then, of course, in 1945, Harry Carey comes to town, and, and uh, he starts broadcasting Cardinal games, and, and Harry's in St. Louis for the next 25 years till. He leaves after 1969, and then the interim there, you'll put Jack Buck, people like Joe Garagiola, Milo Hamilton. There were a lot of people that, that amazingly uh, broadcast Cardinal games over the year and so many Hall of Fame games, but those are some of the big ones. Into the windup he goes. Here it is. A base hit. One run is in. Here's the winning run. The Cardinals win. The Cardinals win. The Cardinals win. Holy cow. The Cardinals win it. Eight to seven. Now, you hear rumors sometimes, but what is the reason that Harry Carey actually left the Cardinals? There seems to be a consensus around the fact that, you know, whether or not it was true or not, there were rumors about him having an affair with the wife of August Bush III. That was one of the beliefs at the time. So, you know, Harry also famously had an automobile accident or was involved in an accident after the 1968 season. He's actually walking. He's, he's uh, trying to get to the Chase Park Plaza, and he gets hit by a vehicle, and he is with a woman that evening. The reports I read, there, there's, the woman's name is never mentioned. That was probably the biggest rumor. There were some other things going on in terms of the relationship with some of the people in Anheuser-Busch. Al Fleischman around the, the PR for AB. He and uh, Kerry famously didn't get along. There were some controversial things that he said along the way. Of course, but Kerry was doing controversial things all along, but... Uh, that seems to be the biggest reason why. So Branch Rickey returns to the Cardinals in 1962. He almost becomes the first GM of the New York Mets. What actually happens there first? Like, why doesn't he get that position with the Mets? And then what brings him back to the Cardinals? Well, Rickey spends his time in the late 1950s and early 1960s actually trying to develop a competing league to the American and National League. It was called the Continental League. And the idea was to compete with the existing uh, professional leagues. It never gets off the ground because what happens is Major League Baseball decides to expand. And for the first time, you know, baseball has, uh, Major League Baseball had 16 teams as late as 1960, the same number of teams it had at the beginning of the 20th century. So you, you finally get baseball in New York, finally get some baseball in some other cities as well. So by late 1962, you had Gussie Bush in St. Louis, who's and as a Bush is now on the Cardinals for almost a decade, 
He takes over in 53. They haven't won a pennant. And he goes out to L.A. and has dinner with a man out there who tells him, look, the smartest man in baseball is sitting in Pittsburgh right now. Pittsburgh uh, being Ricky's home at the time because he had once been an executive expired. Says he's the smartest man in baseball sitting in Pittsburgh right now doing nothing. Why don't you hire him? And Gussie Bush picks up the phone and calls Branch Ricky and uh, makes him a consultant to the team in 1962. And he stays through the end of the 1964 season. And that's one of the, you know, the interesting things about Ricky's career is all these sort of bookmarks, landmarks, milestones of his career that happened with the New York Yankees. His first full year in the front office is 1926. Cardinals beat the Yankees in the World Series. His last year as general manager of the Cardinals is 1942. Cardinals beat the Yankees in the World Series. His last year in baseball is 1964. Cardinals beat the Yankees in the World Series. That's pretty amazing. He does create some serious waves, though, when he shows up in 62. He attempts to compel a 41-year-old Stan Musial to retire. <laughs> and the quote was, he can't run, he can't field, he can't throw. 25 Musials would finish in last place. That could not have gone over well with Cardinal fans. No, it didn't go over well with Cardinal fans. It didn't go over well with Gus Bush. It didn't go over well with Stan Musial. But, you know, I think it's at that point in Ricky's life, he's an old man. He's been around a long time. He's had a lot of success. He's in his 80s. I just think uh, he just became even more blunt than usual in terms of his opinions. And to be fair, Musial was still a good player, but he did retire one year later after the 1963 season. Yeah, that's true. And and, and I was thinking when I saw that quote is, it's probably true, mm-hmm. although sometimes as a GM, at, at, I guess in his point, like you mentioned, he'd been in baseball for so long. There's some politics involved in it, and he was just incredibly blunt. Right. Some things are better left uh, not stated in the press, and that was probably one of them. What role does he have in those 60 teams for the Cardinals that have such success? Not much, really. I mean, in fact, it, it, if anything, he opposed a lot of moves that Ding Divine, the manager, actually did. After he was let go, Bob Bragg famously publishes a memo that Ricky had written, although Ricky as a later said that he had written a memo that wasn't meant for anyone to read but himself, but he basically says that Mike Shannon should be farmed out, that you know some other pitchers should be brought up, that the, you know the, the team should be looking to 1965, all these things about really turning the page and looking to the next year, and of course, the Cardinals end up catching fire in late 1964. Bing Devine goes out and acquires Lee Brock. Barney Schultz becomes this relief ace out of the bullpen, and uh, the Cardinals take off. The Phillies collapse. Not only do they win the pennant, they win the World Series by beating the Yankees. McCarver talks with Gibson, who still needs one more out. And the troublesome Bobby Richardson is up. But the weary Gibson reaches back for something extra. Richardson pops up. Down Maxville. Gathers it in. The Cardinals are the new world champions. Gibson, Boyer, and McCarver join in a big bear hug. Now it's one huge swirling mass of players and fans. Wild enthusiasm, which is a tribute to baseball's unflagging popularity. This is one day St. Louis will never forget. It was a stirring triumph by a Cardinal team reminiscent of the Gas House game. It had some of the speed of that colorful team of the 30s, some of the pitching, and all of its great heart and courage. And that, in the end, carried them through the baseball's highest honor, the World Championship. Were you lucky enough to get interviews with anyone, or did you come across any interviews with any modern either announcers or former players, former executives, who knew Branch Rickey, who had firsthand knowledge of the person? 
Yeah, there, there are a few. Yeah, there's still some around today. In fact, I reference a uh, an email that Tim McCarver, you know, Tim McCarver was a young player with the Cardinals in the 1960s when Ricky was back. But there was a situation early in spring training one year where Ricky makes some comment about, you know, major league players should know how to handle a bat or know how to grip a bat or something like to that effect. And he was looking right at McCarver when he said it. And uh, McCarver took exception to it. And uh, <laughs> McCarver later wrote an email and, and says, I despise the guy. So he was, he was not a fan of that. <laughs> I think there's times that McCarver could have a little bit of an ego too, though. <laughs> I love the guy, but I, it, I think it's true. <laughs> well, and there are probably two guys, between Ricky and McCarver, two guys are probably very healthy. Yeah. <laughs> so Branch Ricky, he's giving a speech in Columbia, Missouri. Upon his election into the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame, he collapses. I think he has some famous last words, like he's going to go into this story and then he can't finish the story. He dies after that. What happens in that event? Yeah, you know, he had not been in, in good health. He gets out of baseball in 64. He managed to stay busy, stays busy for other things in 65. And at the end of 65, he is in the hospital. He had been feeling well, but he gets elected to the Missouri Hall of Fame. And he's invited to go down there to make a speech at Columbia one evening. And he, he wants to go down for the entire day. You know, Ricky's a, a, a former college football player, former college football coach. And he wanted to, uh, uh, to see Mizzou play that day. They actually clinched the Big Eight title that day by beating Oklahoma. He sat outside in the stands all day long watching the game. And then he goes to the Daniel Boone Hotel that night and gives a speech. And as you said, about halfway through that speech, he, he says, I don't think I can continue and just, uh, Famously collapses, goes to the hospital, and uh, something like 10, 12 days later, he dies. What was his personal relationship? Did he have, you know, in terms of marriage, children? Are there any of his descendants still around? I believe his grandson, Branch Ricky III, I know, was still active in baseball not that long ago. He was a uh, longtime minor league official. I think he was president maybe of the Pacific Coast League. I know he had some affiliation with minor league baseball for a very long period of time. So he, he would be the one that I would think about in terms of still active. Of course, his son, Branch Rickey Jr., was also a baseball executive. He was with the Dodgers with Branch Rickey, the father, and goes to Pir- uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates with him. But he was not in good health, and he actually dies. Branch Rickey Jr. actually died before Branch Rickey Sr. He died in the early uh, 1960s. No, he, he was, it was his only son. He actually had six children, I believe. He had uh, all the rest of the daughters. And Branch Rickey Jr. was his only son. So the Cardinals have a tradition. It's often referred to as the Cardinal way. Was that developed all the way back to Ricky, or is that a more modern innovation? No, I think you could you could think of it as going back to Ricky. I mean, you know, some of the people involved in terms of the minor league system, in terms of the minor league development, I mean, these were people that came out of the Ricky minor league. So, yeah, I would say some of that would go all the way back to people who were signed during the Ricky era. I know that it kind of rubs other baseball people the wrong way as if they're the only ones that know how to play the game. It kind of, kind of rubs people the wrong way. But I've always thought it gives them a little bit of an advantage, something that they need that could draw on their past and their history, and it's something that actually existed. I think they actually taught it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you think of, you know, probably the single greatest innovator of the game is Ranch Rickey. And where did he spend most of his career? He spent in St. Louis. And, and most of the time, he spent time with the Browns, but most of his time was with the Cardinals. I mean, as you said earlier, he not only developed the minor league system, but things like sliding pits, batting helmets, all these innovations came from this one man. And he, uh, much of that career was with one team, and that was the Cardinals. 
So the last question I have for you is, what's the overall legacy for today? Maybe people haven't heard of Branch Rickey, or maybe they know the name, but they don't make any connection. What's his legacy on the game? So when you watch it today, do you see the imprint? Because you've done the research, do you see the imprint of Branch Rickey? Well, in terms of, he integrated the game. So prior to what Branch Rickey accomplished in 1947, it was, for whatever reason, whether it was Commissioner Landers or the baseball owner, whoever, the societal attitude that was Major League Baseball was a white man's game until 1947. So Branch Rickey was the man who broke the color barrier of baseball. The minor league system, which which he started, it, it remained fairly much intact over the past 100 years, although it's finally beginning to change. You're beginning to see that now. Teams are beginning to get fewer minor league teams versus back then you had more minor league teams. You're losing some of that minor league identity, but really the structure that Ricky created really lasted about 100 years in terms of minor leagues. And, of course, the other ironic thing about the end of Ricky's career was when he retires at the end of 1964, his last year in baseball, baseball starts the amateur draft the next year, 1965. Mm. Did he have anything to, to do with that? No, I don't believe he did. No, I think that was something that's coming up. That was a, really a cost control issue for owners. What they didn't like was all these bonuses that were being paid to these young players coming out of high school and college, and they saw the draft as a way of reining in expenses. Well, thanks, Mike. I can talk Cardinal baseball a long time. I've been a Cardinal fan my whole life. I really enjoyed it, and I appreciate it. Well, thank you. I appreciate it as well. I would like to thank my guest today, writer and entrepreneur Mike Mitchell. And if you would like to get his book, Mr. Ricky's Redbirds, Baseball, Beer, Scandals, and Celebrations in St. Louis, simply click on the link in the description below. It is filled with great anecdotes, old-time stories, and a ton of interesting baseball history. The featured brew was Urban Underdog American Lager from the Urban Chestnut Brewing Company of St. Louis, Missouri. If you liked our discussion today, please share the episode with a friend. All of the directories have an easy-to-use sharing function, and if you're not yet a subscriber, remember to hit the subscribe button and get new shows immediately after they are released. It's the only way to get new shows right away. If you'd like even more information, like our History of Go-Go Facebook page and check out our YouTube channel as well. The music was provided by the North Carolina band Bones Fork. And finally, to our supporters from more than 50 countries and hundreds of cities across America, I would like to say once again, thank you. There are many more great episodes on the way with discussions on the wonders, a radical new history about the freak performers of the Victorian age, the warrior chief Tecumseh, the history of the world-famous Anheuser-Busch Brewery, presidential spirits, and the daring General Grierson Civil War cavalry raid into Mississippi. So join us again next time when we talk, think, and drink on History of Go-Go.
old December day As she rolled into the station You could hear all the people say There's a girl from Tennessee She's long and she's tall She came down from Birmingham On the Wabash Cannonball Our eastern states are dandy So the people always say from New York to St. Louis and Chicago, by the way. From the hills of Minnesota, where the rippling waters fall. No changes can be taken on the Wabash Cannonball. Here's to Daddy Claxton, may his name forever stand. And always be remembered round the courts of Alabama. His earthly race is over and the curtains around him fall. We'll carry him home to victory on the Wabash Cannonball. Listen to the jingle, the rumble, and the roar As she glides along the woodland, through the hills and by the shore Hear the mighty rush of the engineer, that lonesome hobo squall You're traveling through the jungles on the Wabash Cannonball Dizzy Dean, one of the greats of all time I mean, and now you're talking about fellas that come to play, he come to play. You dig in on him, you know, like they do at home plate, make a hole, time, dig in. He used to fold his arms and watch you. And then when you got through, he'd say, you comfortable? Get a shovel and send for the groundkeeper, because I'm going to bury you right there. And the first one was right at your head. Down you went. And then you stepped in there lightly. He said, that's better. That's better. 